Better Buildings for Humans is powered by Advanced Glazings, makers of the Solera line of products. Solera is the leading glass glazing made specifically for architectural daylighting and with extreme insulation performance. Learn more at advancedglazings.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Better Buildings for Humans, the show where we talk about human health, wellness, occupant comfort, all of the things that are important to those of us who spend so much of our lives in buildings. Today, we have a special treat. I want to introduce Marcel Herman from Branch Pattern. When I saw Marcel's that title on LinkedIn, it was like, I just, I've got to get this guy on the show right away. Listen to this research and development lead associate principal at Branch Pattern, applied anthropologist, applied evolutionist, and engineer. This is going to be fun. Marcel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe, for uh, having me on. It is my pleasure, and it is an honor to have you here. Let's start by um, having you share a little bit about your background and the kind of work you you do today, Um, especially the work you're doing at Branch Pattern, but anything else that you'd like to share with us. Sure. So... So as you said, I've, I've got a, a undergraduate degrees in architectural engineering and, and anthropology, and I'm a licensed engineer, and I also have a master's and PhD in anthropology. And, and really, it stems, as a kid, I really wanted to be an archaeologist. That's, that's what I wanted to do, and that kind of stuck with me through high school. In high school, I read this uh, interesting article uh, in a science magazine. It was a civil engineering professor who had um, uh, con- basically consulted with some archaeologists that were working on a site in Central America. Um, and, you know, and that fascinated me, this, this, this interdisciplinary collaboration between, you know, t- to get at a greater understanding. And it's just, it seemed so cool. I had an interest in engineering too at the time. I liked math and science. And in the 80s, you know, I think every, every high school counselor told anybody that was interested in math and science that you should be an engineer, I think. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I, I, I set out on a plan. And then this was as a senior in high school. I said, I'm going to get undergraduate. I'm going to get dual degrees in, in engineering and anthropology. And I'm going to work as an engineer. Uh, and then I'm going to take what I learned as an engineer and I'm going to apply it. I'm going to go back to grad school and I'm going to become an archaeologist who uses engineering. That, that's what I, that was my plan at the time. Um, and, and I, and I, it, you know, I got the, the undergraduate degrees. I did the engine. You know, I worked as an engineer, got my license, went back to grad school. I started that path. I was, I was taking what I learned in engineering to study archaeological sites using daylight analysis software to help analyze uh, practical and symbolic aspects of lighting uh, in past sites and stuff like that. I was doing that. Um, but then as I was getting towards the end of my degree and I was still working as an engineer uh, throughout that process because that, you know, paid for grad school. Um, and, uh, um, over the time I, you know, I was noticing that we didn't always take occupant needs probably into account as much as we should, um, human factors in general. I was noticing that I was also getting to the point where it's like, um, you know, basically the options for me as an archeologist were continue to, you know, be in academia, which didn't sound too bad to me. Um, or, uh, you can work for a cultural resource management firm. Um, which wasn't, it's interesting, but the pay isn't great unless you own the business. Uh, and, and my wife, you know, if you're going to be in academia, you kind of go wherever the job happens to be, where it turns out it's pretty competitive to get those positions. My wife really wanted to move back to Kansas where our family was. And so 
was like, well, you know, all that coming together, I, I thought it's probably time. Maybe I should switch gears and start thinking about how I how I take anthropology uh, back into engineering. And so that's long story short that you know I, I uh, did that had a consulting business for a while with a partner, and eventually I ended up here at Branch Pattern, um, where I'm I've been here for 16 years and um, uh, basically working at integrating human factors into the design process. Um, and so. Uh, you know, Branch Pattern is a high-performance building consultancy. We have design side, design engineering services. We have building science services um, and uh, doing all sorts of, of different types of, uh, you know, commissioning, sustainability consulting, certification systems, uh, um, you know. And I, I basically um, am, um, you know, I, 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 as part of that process leading that as our small R&D group, the focus is to help our other services and clients apply research based on human factors to the design process, to buildings, to its operations. Um, and, and, and so we conduct comprehensive post-occupancy evaluations. Uh, we collect and assess both qualitative and quantitative data as part of that. Uh, we look at the impacts of design strategies or different equipment types or spatial configurations on on um, productivity and health right uh, and we developed some tools to help us do that and we'll talk i know that you have some questions about that that we'll get to later um and um and then i'll get asked by people in the firm or outside to help them evaluate <clears throat> pieces of equipment or a paper they've come across this you know how valid is it what you know how what impacts does this have on people and then um uh, you know as part of enhanced commissioning we'll also provide the reviews focused on the occupant, um, and and right now I'm probably the biggest uh, effort that um, of under, that we're involved that I'm involved with at the moment is being part of a multidisciplinary effort to develop a comprehensive uh, post-occupancy evaluation process for a university. That's probably the biggest project. So that's that's the that's kind of an overview of my background and what I'm doing now. Well, we are definitely going to talk about post post occupancy evaluation in just a little while. I, d I definitely want to do a dive on that. Let's talk a little bit more about anthropology first. You gave me a really good introduction there, but <clears throat> excuse me, I I'd like to learn a little bit more and and specifically the connection and the logical fit between anthropology and 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 architecture, or, you know, or, uh, and building science. How, why is it such a useful uh, crossover? So yeah, I mean, so so on the one hand, you've got you've got architecture, you've got the built environment, right? And it's really that's not just a constructed thing. I I, can, I like to think of it more of like a living organism, right? It's composed of individual occupants, and each person has their own physiological and psychological needs, and they're in varying degrees of alignment or mismatch with one another. Um, and then there's the organizations that are part of the facility, right? Composed of those individual occupants subject to their own policies and, and conventions and, and uh, in varying degrees of alignment with the, the broader cultural norms of society and the communities that they're a part of, right? And then, and then those groups, uh, they interact with one another within an environment and that shapes or constrains, uh, helps or it hinders what they're trying to do on a day-to-day -day basis, right? That the environment is both the physical building itself that we built, but it's also the social cultural environment it's both of those things together that 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 influence how what people do on a day-to-day -day basis of the decisions that they make, and so um, uh, um, you know, so you have the architecture, the building occupant organism, right, on the one hand, but then on the other hand, you have anthropology, which at its core is just simply the study of people, right? Why we are the way we are, why we do the things we do, right? Uh, how we got to be this way, and so you know, we're studying the human physical form 
anthropologists study human societies and cultures, uh, languages, human manipulation of their environments, right? Studying all those things across space and time. And so it seems like anthropology, I mean, you know, taking those two things together, it seems like anthropology and the social sciences in general would be a good fit for helping uh, uh, plan, design, construct, and operate um, our built environments. Um, and, you know, if we want to take thermal comfort as an example, right? So thermal comfort, that's an experience that we have, and it's dependent on specific interactions of, uh, of social, cultural, psychological, physiological factors um, within a specific environmental setting, right? That those all play, impact the experience of thermal comfort that we have within an environment, right? And um, so, you know, if we look at just clothing, which is one of those factors, right? The insulated properties of clothing impact our thermal comfort. But we don't just pick clothing based on those insulated properties, right? <laughs> right? It's a very cultural thing, right? It's, it's, it's um, the, the, you know, what the perspective one has of what an acceptable piece of clothing is to wear, right? That's shaped by our peers. It's shaped by the organizational policies that you work within. Uh, just the work that we do, the, the, those constraints that provide on that, the roles that we play, the media we consume, uh, society in general, right? All those shape our selection of clothing. Uh, and it's also used to establish group identity as well as membership within that group. So there's a lot of things that go at play for selection of clothing besides its ability to help us be thermally comfortable within an environment. And so we may, you know, there's competing things that, that are going on there that impact thermal comfort. So maybe people... You know, there's there's a reason to pick certain clothing that may not, may not maybe it won't make us as thermally comfortable as, as as we might, but there are other factors that shape that. And then then there's also the the cultural norms that influence whether or not we are comfortable socially enough, or if we even have the power right to take actions to achieve thermal comfort in a given setting. And so you can think about how varying norms around seniority right or hierarchies that are associated with job types within a building or roles, privileges, right? Or even respect for one's elders, right? All of that might impact whether somebody feels like they have, they are willing to go up, have the right to go up and, and adjust a thermostat in an open office setting in front of everybody else, right? So there's a whole, right? So, so we're missing key parts of the picture without understanding some of these behavioral, social, cultural factors that influence what's going on within the building. So in your role, um, you, you have to react to these, you know, to the socio-cultural environment. Do you have a role to play in um, in manipulating it? And if so, can you give me maybe a couple of specific examples of, of how that can be useful, used and useful? So what exactly do you mean by manipulating the environment? Well, like, are there changes that you make to, to the built environment so, that, that impact uh, your, the socio-cultural environment? So recommendations that we make on certain design strategies yeah, or building. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. I mean, just the the um, you know the fact um, of of where you know the where you locate the thermostats, how in view they are of the occupants impacts um, impacts that impacts whether or not occupants even know that there's some a place that they can go to make those adjustments, assuming that it's even adjustable by the occupants, which many times is not the case, right? Um, and some people may have easier access to that than others based on those locations, right? That can create sometimes uh, conflict, not necessarily overt conflict, but 
some riffs that can add to tensions that are in an existing setting like that. Just, you know, not just the thermostat, any type of control of the environment, lighting controls. You can think of shades um, or blinds uh, in a space. And, and if they're manual, right, and who, who, who is willing to go up and make those adjustments? Do they go ask the person there, is it all right if I make this adjustment or not? Um, so if you've putting in manual control, I mean, that's one of, that's one of the reasons um, that shades may get left or blinds get left closed. They get left in a spot, right, in a location, and they just stay there regardless. That's part of the factor. Now, there are other things, too. Sometimes it's just fatigue. People just have other things on their mind they're not thinking about. But in terms of who has, who has access to that um, physically as well as, you know, uh, socially, uh, and feels like they have, they are able to make those adjustments without either asking somebody or asking somebody. Some people don't want to ask ask the person. Uh, they don't feel comfortable asking somebody if they can make those adjustments, open the blinds or close the blinds. Some people have no problem doing that. Right? All those impact uh, interactions within a space. Uh, that was absolutely brilliant. I, look, if I've been speaking about blinds and their issues for years. You know, I, obviously, I'm a daylighting guy. I want the natural light. I want the views to come in. But you know, all this time, it's never once struck me that there are hierarchical issues that impact whether or not someone will go walk over and open that blind back mm -hmm. again. So that was very insightful. That was very insightful. That was interesting. I'm going to change gears a little bit on you now. I want to talk sure. about one of your tools. I, I, okay. Um, the, the, I believe I'm pronouncing it correctly. The happy tool. Yep. The happy tool. The happy tool. What does it do and for whom? Sure. So the happy tool, right. Um, it stands for health and productivity performance estimator. Um, and it is, and so H E H A P P E, right. Um, it's, it's an Excel based tool and it's, we use it to quantitatively estimate the impacts on productivity and health that result from various indoor environmental quality conditions, right? From temperature, you know, relative humidity, lighting, sound, um, and what, and whatnot. And so, um, it's, we've, we've called it different things over the years. And finally, one of our principals, Pete Jefferson in our office came up, he's like, he came up with this a couple of years ago and we should be calling it happy, right? We're trying to make occupants happy. And so here's health and productive performance estimator. I'm like, oh, that's perfect, Pete. I didn't even think of that. So it's, it's kind of stuck since then. Um, so we call it happy, but so it's based on a lot of IEQ uh, peer-reviewed research from the last few decades. And and if you've read Joseph Allen's and John McComber's book, Healthy Buildings, right? So a lot of that uh, um, research that they've based their book on is this. It's there's a there's a huge overlap with that research with the same research that we've used to to do the tool. Um, and and we developed the original version of this tool back in 2009 um, while we we're performing a, a significant number of era funded retro commissioning projects for the GSA at the time. So for all of the energy conservation measures that we were ended up proposing as a result of doing the retro commissioning, we also wanted to look at what the, the, the health and productivity impacts were from those, not just, not just look at the energy savings relative to first costs, but the health and productivity. And, you know, the GSA had done their own, even up to then, by then they'd been doing some look at, at health and productivity impacts. So there was something they were aware of and they were like, yeah, we should be doing, looking at this too. Um, and, you know, every, and others were kind of, a, we kind of were generally aware that, you know, people costs are going to dwarf the other operational costs at the time. We didn't do a lot of it in detail, but everybody's kind of generally, yeah, sure. That's, that's certainly the case. And so, you know, we started, you know, we, we ran some very conservative numbers for these, you know, 
buildings. And so you see conservative estimates of like 3.5 million in annual occupant productivity savings versus $850,000 in annual energy savings, right? So it becomes, and that was a very conservative estimate, right? We were missing, we actually left out a lot of stuff there. Um, we were looking at a narrow set of IQ factors. And so it was, um, yeah, it was, it's very stark. It's like a stark difference to, and to see those it's like, wow, yeah, that makes a difference. If you really, you know, if you're really taking that into account, it makes a difference in the decisions that you make relative to what you're going to implement and when. Um, it can change the, the you know, in terms of ranking the ECMs, it can change that ranking order um, by doing that. And so over the years, right, we've, we've built on that tool. Uh, added different modules um, based on, you know, either project needs or occupant, uh, organizational needs requests for certain things. Um, and uh, the individual modules, they range from, range from assessing productivity impacts of daylight access and glare to assessing the cognitive performance impacts from CO2 levels and particulate matter exposure uh, to estimating probability of influenza A infection resulting from different space conditions like ventilation rates and filtration levels so right we've, we've updated it over the years like i said and um we use it primarily for well we not primarily but we use it as a part of pre and post occupancy evaluations right so that we're assessing the impacts of existing space conditions are having on occupants and what improvements that, that then those impacts might have and like i said just like we did gsa we've been we've used it in our retro commissioning projects since then to help estimate the ECMs that we're proposing and during design to assess the, the impacts of different strategies that we're, we're looking at. Um, and, and we found that, you know, when we quantify those productive and health, that does help drive the decision-making process. It helps, it's more like, it helps to, to include more features that impact wellness and, and energy efficiency, sustainability in general. Okay. Well, there's there's another tool that you, that I noticed, uh, the facility infection risk estimator. Same question. Tell us what it does, and and well, no, I changed question slightly. Tell us what it does, and what factors drive the the outcomes. Sure. So, so that is essentially it's another. Mo- it's really a module of the Happy tool. But okay. It was the 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 impetus for its development was driven by the pandemic. Um, and so when the pandemic started, right, we had all, you know, clients and, and building owners, you know, really asking for help to help, you know, what, you know, we, you know, we can, you can tell us what the solutions are, but how do we help evaluate among the different solutions? What is the best solutions that we should be using most effective, you know, especially like you think of school districts who have limited resources and funds. It's like, what do we need to be focusing on and how can we justify that? Um, and so this helped this was one of the reasons it's like okay so that we need something to help quantify that that what what the the strategies that we employ how do they positively you know or reduce the risk of infection you know, how what can we do and so that 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 was the emphasis for for starting the development of this and we i mean it, we started it in i mean in by end of march of that year we were 2020 we were work, starting to work on it and delving into it um and so um in its current version, so it's it's a web-based um, uh, tool and it's accessible to anyone outside of Branch Pattern. Anybody can can access it and use the page. It's on, it's available through on our web page. And so basically, what it does, so it estimates the the aerosol viral particle removal efficiency. Right, that sounds very technical. It's just removing the the aerosols that contain viruses out of the air, either removing them or inactivating the viruses. Right, so it estimates that efficiency of different removal mechanisms. 
Um, and then the so and then once that's the case, then it takes that and and calculates an associated probability of respiratory infection uh, for adults and children. Um, and given a set of input conditions like you know the size of the space, right, the volume, the demographic factors, the vaccination status of the people, uh, and the time of exposure, right. So, and, and we have it set up to because we initially when we were starting on this, right, we, there was no information on SARS-CoV-2 to be able to do to help us calculate the probability of infection. We had to wait several months for to start getting some of that information to be able to to do that. So we ended so we built it initially on influenza, and to use that as a proxy to help. Uh, at least helped our owners until we got that data later in 2020 to and updated the tool after that. But um, and so when we talk about removal mechanisms or inactivation mechanisms, we're referring to temperature, relative humidity, ventilation rates, right? System filters, mask wearing, uh, portable air cleaners, or upper U, U, upper room UVGI systems. So the tool can look at all of those. Oh, and, and gravity. That's just a, so everything falls out of the air eventually. So. We have to account for that too, but so it's those removal mechanisms, mechanisms combined with the input conditions. Those are the factors that drive the outcome, right? So inputting all those, that's going to tell me how effective the we can removing the virus from the air, and then and then from that I can we can estimate what the probability of, of infection is. And it 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 oh you, you, go ahead if you have a question. Uh, yeah, so, uh, uh, do you have to? Do you have to get models or details from specific manufacturers? Is it that granular or is it, you know, a HEPA filter does this? So it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, sometimes you have to estimate or calculate what the ventilation rate is based on parameters uh, for the system. And then it's just the, for the system uh, filtration, it's just, you just, we have it set up so that all we need is like, what's the MER filtering? And from that we can, we have the estimated removal based on data that we know from the filters, what, what that is for particle range, different particle size ranges, right? And so it's an, it's an you know, there are different rates of removal for different size particles that vary for MERV. And so we've got a kind of an average for each of the MERV filter ratings that we use. And the other researchers have done that too. We've, I, there's really nothing new about this tool. This tool makes use of uh, well, it's the the workhorse engine is the Wells for the probability of infection part is the Wells Riley model of infection. It's been around since the 70s, and people modified it on and off and doing different things. But it's, you know, the applications of other researchers have been doing some of this stuff for years. We, you know, the the new the only really new thing that we did is we just added a whole bunch of more removal mechanisms in in the, the tool than had people had been looking at previously. Um, and so that's really the only thing new for at the time. There's other tools out there now that do very similar things to what this tool does. But um, yeah, and originally it was, you know, we had to originally develop it in Excel, right, at first. And then we had somebody help us get it into a web. By the time by the time we had the SARS-CoV-2 data, we also had a web version. It was all out there then on, on the web version at that point. Like I said, it's on our website. Uh, there's a, um, a, a user guide that you can access and then walk you through how to use it in detail if you have questions there's also uh, several tutorial videos on, on on the on the tool as well that you can look at and then um i also co-authored if you somebody really wants to, to delve into the details i co-authored a peer-reviewed paper with um dr josephine lau at the university of nebraska lincoln um she actually also did a a peer review of the tool itself when it was in beta phase. I just, we wanted somebody else to have, well, I wanted some third, somebody else's eyes on it before I started using it in, in detail. And so she was great enough to, to, to work with us on that. 
I have to ask you a question. It's purely out of my own curiosity. When you used influenza as a proxy in the early days, pre-COVID, pre-COVID uh, data, um, how how um, well aligned were the two in terms of uh, prediction? Um, I think that they were similar relative to kind of the first versions of of COVID, but as COVID evolved, then it, the the delta between the two got less and less. Interesting. Um, it was, but yeah, because they're just more infectious now. Um, right. right. The COVID ones out there than influenza. But I mean, it you know, it was it was, you know, essentially what we're really doing with this tool. The, the it's really effective in terms of like comparing, compare. It's a relative. We 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 recommend using it as a relative comparison between different strategies. It's like, you know, if it comes up with like you got twenty, you have ten percent probability of infection with all this stuff after two hours of exposure. It's like that's not. It's like I can't. That's not hard and fast. You're not. It's like you're not gonna. Right. It's like if one minute fifty nine seconds, you're not gonna be infected, and in two minutes or, or you are. Right. It's very. It's a. It's based on averages and for the in the population as well as on the building side of the things. And so it, it's more about relative comparisons to help you figure out what is the most effective strategy to help you reduce that probability of infection. Okay. Well, let's, let's keep talking about models. You, you wrote a really interesting uh, article uh, about modeling based on an interview with, uh, with uh, Dr. Erica Thompson. Um, and, and the gist is, 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 or at least as I understood it, was that the value that we get from mathematical modeling is based on the underlying values that are used to create and manipulate the models. Um, can you explain that concept to me and maybe give us an example, you know, if you could do it with daylighting, maybe that would be great, but it doesn't matter as long as, long as you can help me understand uh, sure. what you mean by that. Yeah, and that, that was from an interview with Dr. Thompson from David Roberts on his Volta podcast, which is a really great podcast. Also, okay. I recommend people listening to that. Yes, um, he, he always has some great, fascinating people on that podcast, and Dr. Thompson certainly was one of them. Um, and in her book um, is also that sparked that interview is Escape from Model Land: How Mathematical Models Can Lead Us Astray and What to Do About It. That, yeah, definitely a good book. As I recommend as well. Um, so yeah, the, the gist of my piece that drew from that interview in the book um, was that right those who decide what variables to include within a model, they're going to have significant influence on what the output of that model is, right? And those who interpret the output of that model are going to have significant influence on any resulting decisions made or courses of action taken um, as a result of the output and interpretations, right? So so their world worldviews, right? The modelers' worldviews, their life experiences, their privileges, their cultural norms that they grew up with, their values, they're, they're all going to strongly influence the input variables that are selected and, and, uh, and therefore subsequent outputs and then how those outputs are interpreted. What's important versus what's not important? Is it, you know, it, it, how those are weighed, uh, weighted versus one something against another? Those values really influence that. So. You know, and if you increase the diversity among those doing the modeling, then that's going to increase the ability to capture more of that relevant variation in inputs and incorporate more of a, a nuanced assessment of the outputs, right? And so then you get a more, that should enable a more comprehensive view of, of potential outcomes and a more equitable risk of cost-benefit assessments. So I think in that, uh, and I, I have some daylight examples here to go through too, but I, I think in the article I mentioned that by excluding um, quantified estimates of, of occupant health and productivity, right? The impacts from modeling and life cycle, if you exclude that um, from modeling and life cycle cost analyses, right? So 
when you do that, modelers or whoever the decision maker is for that, um, essentially they're making a value judgment that the occupant's quality of life and success in their day-to-day is less important than energy consumption and other aspects of building performance, right? They're not, nobody's explicitly saying that. They may not, you're not even really thinking that, right? But it's there nonetheless. By doing that, you have made that value judgment. Um, that, that's the case. And then, you know, like, um, so let, let's talk about some daylight modeling examples. So, right, a modeler, let's say a modeler who grew up in one of the Nordic countries, you know, they may be enculturated to view uh, the use of large windows and reflective interiors, right, to maximize daylight exposure and counteract the long dark winters. That's That seems normal to them, right? And so that could un- unconsciously influence how they interpret modeling output for buildings in other regions, potentially, potentially impacting how they weigh those, those, those outputs. Um, and then a, a modeler's educational background and associated intellectual traditions, like say you're comparing architectural students, architects versus engineers, right? The different background that they have in terms of just the, what, what they've been taught and how they go about viewing the world, right? Or, or perhaps a religious background, right? That, that could influence whether some a modeler interprets daylight primarily in functional terms, right? Say visibility and energy savings or solar heat gain or what, you know, that, or also consider maybe more symbolic meanings or aesthetics, right? Daylight as a representation of wellness or the spiritual elements to that, right? That in terms of weighing what's more important versus the other could definitely have an impact there. Right. And then, and then if you compare it, let's say we have two modelers and one modeler grew up in a very, in a higher socioeconomic setting and the other modeler was, was in a much lower socioeconomic setting. And both of them experienced different qualities of healthy physical environments um, in their, in the homes and the schools that they occupied in, in their youth and maybe early adulthood. And so that's going to influence, right, the internal cost benefit calculations they make when they're weighing the benefits of daylight exposure versus first cost or energy performance, right, down the road. All those, so all those, that's why, you know, having more diversity helps capture. So we don't get um, myopic or that we have blinders on uh, sometimes. And, and, you know, we, we're talking about it in relation to modeling, but it really, you know, it, it has impacts for all aspects of design. Okay, that makes sense. Now, I'm, I'm really glad I got a chance to, to ask that question. I want to go to another one of your articles, um, shedding some light on circadian evolutionary mismatches. We've we've talked about uh, circadian rhythms on this program several times. Uh, I can't obviously you can't be in daylighting without having some sure. discussions about the rhythms, but we never really talked about it in terms of you know an evolutionary mismatch. Can you explain that idea for our listeners and tell us what can be done? within the built environment to, to accommodate that mismatch as a way to promote healthy wake sleep patterns. Sure. So, so evolu- the, the concept of evolutionary mismatch. So that's, these, these are basically occurrences where an organism's traits or systems like our circadian system in this case, right. That were adapted in a, in an ancestral environment, um, end up being less adaptive or maybe maladaptive, right. They actually cause harm in another environment that's different from the one that it evolved within. Right. So if we look at the circadian system, you know, and, and I'm not going to go into the details of the system because you've had guests that have talked who know much more about it than I do talk in great depth. And, and so, yeah, people should listen to those episodes <laughs> to get to get that information. Um, but so, you know, if, if, if we consider the 24 hour day night cycle that our ancestors experienced um, as we evolved, um, 
in environments that were devoid of constant levels of artificial illumination at night, right? And with lifestyles that were mostly active during the day, because we're day active animals as humans. That's how that's how we evolved to, to function, right? So this this um, you know this is an environment and the, and the lifestyles that are circadian. That's the environment in our lifestyles that our circadian system evolved to most effectively function within to keep our physiology synchronized, right, with the external world. So given that, it's not that surprising that the modern built environment, you know, in our lifestyles, right, artificial illumination levels often too low during waking hours or excessive during sleeping hours, right, that don't really mimic the exterior day-night cycle that well, um, and, and, you know, that our circadian system evolved effectively to, to function in. It's not surprising that that's kind of a mismatch. It doesn't, our systems don't function as well in, in those environments. Um, and so, you know, that, that ends up limiting the amount and quality of sleep we get, negatively impacting our health and our cognitive performance, which I know your other guests have gone into some great detail in on that. And so, you know, kind of the, the, the short, less satisfying answer is that we need to look at better aligning aspects of our physical environment and lifestyles with relevant aspects of the environments and, and lifestyles that our circadian system um, evolved to, to most effectively function within, right? And so not looking at bright screens with illumination heavy in the blue spectrum late into the evening, right? Or lowering those artificial illumination levels at night in general, right? Exposing ourselves to daylight and views um, of the sky dome during the day, particularly during the morning and early afternoon. Now, you know, there's more to it than that. The article goes into to, to more depth and I don't, I could go into more depth that it might, that one would take a while to go through. I'm happy to do it, but um, I don't know if you want to, we might go over that, that sweet spot that people might start to get a little bored. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll just do a whole program on it or, or something equivalent. Uh, we, we've, you know, definitely got a couple of those lined up. So that might be a brilliant idea, but I want to use the time I have you with today. I, I do not want to miss the opportunity to talk about your work in post-occupancy evaluations. Um, can you start by explaining uh, for, the, for our audience um, the purpose of a POE and, and generally how they're being carried out these days? Yeah, so, so POEs, right, you know, these are systematic evaluations um, conducted after initial occupancy. For us, we, like, we would prefer they to be at least a year after occupancy, right? So the building's gone through all four seasons, right? Right, so we do that in order to. You're looking to assess the building performance. Um, you, and historically, POEs have kind of focused more on the, the occupants' perspective, um, but it also covers energy performance, right? Water usage, other aspects of building operations and maintenance um, to varying degrees as, as well. Right, we're trying to understand how well the building is performing. Does it meet? Did you know? Is it still meeting the original design intent, or has the operations of the building really changed. The needs of the people and the building changed. And now does that building still meet those needs? So we're looking at those different types of questions and trying to, to answer them and then figure out, um, um, you know, if, if, if there's misalignment, you know, what can we do to maybe help align the building back with the, with, with the needs um, um, and, you know, set out a, maybe it's a long, you know, short plan or a longer term plan, depending on what, what's needed to get done, assuming that the building owner is interested in addressing um, those needs. But also then also we, we get uh, uh, lessons learned, right, to help the industry in general um, moving forward. So that, that's, that's a high level overview of what a POE typically is. Um, for us, we try to make it as comprehensive as we can. Um, sometimes we have to pull back on that based on scope limit, you know, budget limitations, time limitations of the owner, but we try to make it 
by comprehensive, I mean, so we're, we're trying to incorporate both a quantitative element to it as well as a qualitative element. So, so on the building side of things, we're, you know, we're reviewing the organization's existing data. So building plans, utility data, BMS trending data, work order data, with any, anything that they collect that they're willing to share with us, we're going to, to review to help us get an initial assessment of what's going on. And then you know, when we get out in the field, we're taking a variety of IAQs, indoor environmental quality spot measurements. We're setting data loggers to capture trended IAQ conditions, maybe a week to two weeks worth of data in different locations uh, across the building, kind of get a representation of what's going on within the building on that side of things. Um, we could be doing thermal imaging of the envelope and equipment. And we're walking the building and making visual assessments. And then on the people side of things, um, we're doing surveys. That's the typical people when see, you know, we hear POEs, people always think of surveys. And that is a common thing that, that's done, are surveys. And so we do that. It's good data that you can get to help provide one perspective on, on building performance. And we're doing walkthrough interviews and focus groups with occupants and building operators. Um, and, and sometimes maybe we might do something like an activity area analysis. Where we're trying to get an understanding of how many people are in a space over a given period of time, just to get looking at space utilization. Um, and then, um, what near and dear to my heart is conducting in, in context interviews and observations of the occupants in the, in their day to day, we're, we're essentially conducting a series of built environment ethnographies as part of that process. And, and, and ethnographies, right. It's a key method in anthropology, right. And ethnographies are are typically defined as, as kind of a systematic analysis of human interactions in a defined space and time with a focus on performance, what people do, the power differentials, who has it and who doesn't, uh, rituals like habits, processes, procedures, and you know event, regular events that occur, looking at all of that. And eth ethnographies in the built environment then are kind of examinations of the building and occupant performance relative to those things and how that performance is impacting occupant and organizational habits, the things they do on a day-to-day -day basis, their needs, whether they're met or not, and other human factors. And so then we take all of that data um, and we analyze it together. And, and we're looking for correlations among different aspects of occupant behavior and performance, facility configuration and performance, and building operations and maintenance, looking at triangulating and looking at all that to figure out what's going on in the building and why is it going on in the building. So it provides kind of a nuanced understanding of the successes and deficiencies, right? And that helps us figure out then the best solutions um, to meet those needs, as well as, um, um, you know, lessons learned for the future. Plus, because we're engaging people, we often are, are, are um, giving uh, stakeholders who didn't have a voice in the design that were maybe left out of that process or just because they're, they just weren't, they weren't part of the built in the building at that time. Right? We're giving them voices um, in, in terms of the building, how it operates, what they need. And sometimes those are marginalized groups too. So it's, 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 it, it's, that's a real benefit of POEs, I think. Um, and, and, you know, we, we call them POEs, but we often do them we also call them pre-occupancies and do them like at the early end part of pl the planning process that we come and do that as an evaluation to help guide the design moving forward. So, yeah. So an anticipatory sort of exercise. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. I got to move to the question that I ask everybody every single time. And, and, and that is, and you can answer it however you like from whatever perspective or angle you like, 
what makes a great building? So I'm, I'm going to plagiarize Robert Bean here, right? Famed Ashray fellow and distinguished lecturer. And I love Robert. Um, he's, he is one knowledgeable dude. Um, I'm going to say that great buildings, um, a great building is one that's been designed for people. Basically, he often says design for people, good buildings follow. I think he's right. Uh, you design for the occupants, you design for the operators, you design uh, for the larger community and society. You actually do that. You include all the relevant key stakeholder groups within the process, design process. You know, you work through competing values, you generate understandings between different groups, and you coalesce together on a project vision, right, and targets. And then, and then so that's that's kind of part one. Then you gotta. Um, uh, um, you got to maintain that vision, right? Those goals and the targets throughout the design construction process. And you can do th that through things like human-centered or integrated design. Uh, the using OPRs, those are those are underutilized tools, which actually, if you use them as they're designed and intended, they can be quite effective to maintaining targets. Um, and enhanced commissioning. So OPR is part of enhanced commissioning. All that together is, is, is useful for that. And then POEs, you validate or verify the building and performing as intended after occupancy, right? You you want you may have a great building initially, but you want to make sure that that's a great building throughout its life. And so, things like continuous commissioning or monitoring, more extensive IEQ monitoring, you know, integrated as part of the BMS system, uh, post occupancy evaluations, you know. So, you know, it's a lot, but you know what? If you do it, you're most likely going to have a great building. And I and without them, I don't. You may not even have a mediocre building. I think. Um, if you're not doing at least some of those for sure. Yeah, we could talk for hours on like almost any one of these subjects. <laughs> Is there any news that you would like to share, Marcel? Any big announcements from Branch Pattern or any side projects you're doing? Anything that you'd like to share with our audience? Um, let's see. So, well, so as a firm, we recently released a report um, that's working towards establishing a benchmark. Um, for embodied carbon in the, the U.S. industrial real estate sector. Uh, we have another group that's working on that. And um, it's the first effort along these lines that we're aware of, that we know of. And basically, you need, kind of really need that kind of benchmarking, um, right, so that we can start to know what kind of progress uh, the sector is making relative to dealing with embodied carbon. Um, and that report's available on our website. But, I mean, that's pretty cool. I thought it was pretty cool when we released that. Um, I already mentioned the the multidisciplinary POE effort that I've, that that's the big thing really that I've got going on, at least through branch pattern right now. Um, we're in the process of updating our website. That should be done. I think that's, we've been needing really to do that for a couple of years to better reflect who we are as an organization. And so that's going to be done in 2024. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and then um, we added two really cool people uh, at the principal practice lead level to our firm recently that I was, when I first heard that they were joining, I was really excited and they've been great so far. Sarah Gudeman and, and Christy Walson, um, right. They're, they're bringing some new energy and insights relative to sustainability consulting certification systems, right. IAQ, continuous measurements, even AI, um, to, to name a few, I, their perspectives on this and their experiences are, are really adding, to, to what branch planner is capable of doing. Um, and, you know, and we've grown a lot over the last few years. So we started to start see some of those silos that start 
picking up that you see in organizations that they get bigger and they're they're really good at, at helping us break those silos down so yeah that that's probably one of the most exciting things that i've found uh, for us in the last years is those two joining our firm Oh, that's fantastic. Well, congratulations to both of them and congratulations to you and uh, uh, to your firm in, in bringing them on board. Marcel, thank you so much. What a wonderfully insightful and, uh, uh, you know, fresh perspective on so many things that, you know, often has become kind of a stale, um, I'll say a stale practice in some ways. Uh, and, and, and you know, when we focus just on the math and just on the on the energy, we, uh, we lose so much. So I really appreciate this opportunity to hear your perspective on those things. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. I really had a good time. Absolute pleasure. Take care of ourselves. Yep, you too. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Better Buildings for Humans. For more information on the world's best light diffusing and highly insulating glass glazing, please visit advancedglazings.com.